Hello, and welcome to an episode of Melanated and Educated. My name is Destiny, and today I'm here with... Hi, I'm Lily Joy. I'm a Diné and Southern U activist currently attending Stanford University, and I'm super excited to be here talking with y'all today. Oh my gosh, I'm so, I'm, this is like so weird for me. I'm like really excited. Um, <laughs> uh, can you tell a little bit about yourself? <clears throat> yeah, so um, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico, I'm born and raised. Um, and I kind of started my activism efforts there um, after facing a lot of racism in my high school. I thought it was really important to create a space for Indigenous students to congregate, for them to feel safe in space, in a space where non-Indigenous students can learn about Native issues. Um, so I created Native American Student Union at my former high school. Um, and then I moved to Stanford University, where I now study um, critical studies, uh, comparative studies in race and ethnicity, with my emphasis being environmental justice. So I look at um, mostly looking at the intersection between um, tribal sovereignty and environmentalism, looking at how environmentalism, um, envi environmental racism impacts specifically Black and Indigenous communities. Um, and yeah, and I continue to advocate for um, positive new representation. Currently, um, I work with the movement People Not Mascots and the founder of the movement, um, and we're working on a federal resolution to condemn Native mascots, and we have worked um, to gather petitions to make sure that students can um, take those petition signatures, thousands of petition signatures to their school boards to help them remove native mascots. Um, also, we work with different states and state legislatures to try and, and pass and enact policy that removes um, racist native mascots from public schools. So I was looking on your website, right? <clears throat> and so we were actually in class today because I was like really excited. I was telling Ren about this. And we were like going through like our state because I live in Georgia and mm. it's really like weird because it's like some of these schools like I recognize like from like conventions and stuff from different clubs, but it's like, you don't really know their mascot, but then it's like, wow, it's really weird that like places near me mm -hmm. still have like people as mascots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I got into this specifically the um, people at mascots work, um, I didn't know how vast the issue was. Mm -hmm. I made a TikTok video that was like, hey, if you have petition signatures, I'm making a Google Doc spreadsheet um, with a bunch of petition signatures. Go ahead and send them to me. And I just got messages in the hundreds. And then I started looking more into the issue and found out that there's around 2,000 high schools um, that have Native mascots now. It's around 1,900, um, which is like 100 less, around 200, between 100 and 200 less high schools. Um, from when I started this work, which is amazing. Um, but it, I realized how vast of an issue it is and I didn't realize how prevalent they are, but it is really alarming um, to see how many, it's I think it's one in 19 right now, um, high schools in America have native mascots and it's just um, disturbing to think it's, it's that prevalent right now in the United States in 2023. Mm -hmm. I know like, when me and my friends were talking about it, we were like, imagine if like we were mascots because it's no like surprise that we get made fun of like all the time on the internet, in person, whatever, just like as a community. But like, I've still never experienced something that like, gosh, I just feel like it's really cool that you're standing against it because I don't know what I would do if I was being treated like this little 
token or icon all the time? Yeah, um, I think a lot of people like to cast Anita Mascot issue as a non-issue, as like kind of a small issue. I get told a lot like there's bigger issues and I, I do believe that. Um, there are bigger issues, especially with the Indian Child Welfare Act said to be most likely be overturned or gutted. Um, there's the missing murder indigenous people epidemic. Um, but my outlook is it's really hard to fight these really systemic ingrained issues created by colonialism when people don't see us as human beings in the first place. And so that's why I'm really passionate about the Native mascot work and representation work in general, because um, it's really hard to combat these really hard issues if we don't have a baseline understanding of who we are. Mm -hmm. So would you say this is like the first step in your work? Oh, absolutely. I'm a huge advocate against, I'm specifically um, interested, um, passionate about ending sexual violence um, in Native communities and I'm working toward ending the missing word Indigenous people epidemic. I'm a huge advocate for Native cultures and revitalization of cultures. And that's all really tied to the Native mascot issue. Um, Native mascots make Native children want to distance themselves from their culture. Um, they also are just dehumanizing imagery. And I think it's really hard um, for people to treat us like human beings. Um, I'm a sexual assault survivor. And that's a really unfortunately common narrative amongst Native women. 50% of Native women are sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Um, a third are raped. Um, Native women in parts of this country are 10 times more likely to be murdered. Um, and this is in part just rooted in the fact that we're not seen as human beings, I really do believe, um, which is why I'm passionate about the Native mascot work that I do. Um, but it is a part, it's really interconnected. Um, I see through more of my studies how all of it's connected. I mean, environmentalism is all connected into this as well, because we are inherently tied to the land. We are inherently tied. Um, our cultures are inherently tied to um land revitalization inherently tied to healing the land and so it's environmentalism representation ending sexual violence um to native peoples ending the missing bird indigenous people crisis cultural revitalization um reparations and and healing from the residential schools system they're all really connected and i um I think it's really important for people to see that these issues are really connected and that's what I'm really interested in studying and advocating for. So um, I think one thing we kind of touched on a little bit earlier was representation. Um, do you think that there are some works that you feel like a connection to or you feel like have positively represented you or made you feel seen? Um, Native film right now is really emerging. I'm also an actor. So that's actually why I'm taking the quarter off right now to work on a few acting projects. Um, I think Reservation Dogs is a is a huge step in Native representation. Um, there's another show, Dark Winds, that has like the Native language, like mind language, like the Navajo language incorporated into the script. Um, and Native people just have like more agency in shows like that. Um, and there's so much stuff coming out and emerging um, that's really exciting. Um, I have, um, my father's Afro-Indigenous, my father's father is Black, and I would love to see more representation of mixed Native people, Afro-Indigenous people as well. And I think that there's a long way we have to go in, in terms of representation, but I do think that like 
giant steps have been made in the past decade um, where people are finally seeing us on like cable television and streaming services, which I think is really exciting. And I didn't think it was going to happen in my lifetime for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be able to not just see this reputation, representation start to emerge and blossom, but to be a part of it has been incredibly rewarding. And I and I think it would have really changed my life to see a movie or a TV show growing up that um, where I saw myself because it was really hard. I mean, when you're growing up and when you're a teenager, it's already so hard to navigate identity and who you are. And I was navigating being mixed, being native, being brown in predominantly white spaces. Um, And I think to be able to see that in the media I would have consumed would have been a total game changer. Um, And I really hope that for the younger generation. That is so cool. I was talking to one of my friends. She is, she's so, she's so cool. She made her own screenplay and Mm -hmm. she's actually Indian. And she was making the story about like this girl who is black American and Indian. And so when she was pitching it, everyone was like, well, why does she have to be both? Like, if you're Indian, like just make her Indian. And she was like, well, no, this is like kind of like a love letter to my friends and like their stories. And I've gotten a lot of help trying to make this story come true. And, you know, she was talking about that to me and she was talking about how people, if they do want to push representation, they want to be like a very clear cut, this just check this box, you know, mm-hmm. can't be queer and brown and a girl and this and that you have to be where we're only doing one thing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, truly. Um, um, what I've seen in native film though, is that because it is blossoming and I've worked with some of the people who are emerging in native film, I think there's, because there's a real, a lot of these people are really rooted in their community. They're willing to listen and to, um, and are open to the possibility of writing these mixed stories, but also comes down to not just that them, but like, who's at who who are the showrunners who are the producers who are and the predominantly white and so you're pitching these stories that they don't resonate with at all and and specifically with afro-indigenous people like make up like I mean native people make up around like two between two to four percent of the population and then you make it even smaller like it's it's really niche and there's gonna have to be a lot of advocacy from different groups to make those stories um come come out but they need to um and yeah it is difficult because some people just want to see this one thing or and then the people that you do see from the native community um not always um but there is more light-skinned natives and there is brown skin dark skin natives in our native representation currently and I'm excited to see that change um and I'm excited to see um more brown skin, dark skin natives um, come to the forefront and write and direct and produce really cool things. You talked a little bit about, you know, starting your projects and things like that. Has it been like, has it been hard to avoid stereotypes? Or do you think that they've all been very like welcoming to adjusting to what you feel your character needs? Um, I'm still like a blossoming actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been really grateful to work on sets where there is lots of Native people. And so um, I've been really grateful to have like advocates for myself um, and to, if there's something I just want to change. 
um, I've been really grateful to have people to help me stick up for myself um, and to rewrite things um, and to advocate for certain things to be in the script. Um, but there's also like the, there's also roles that I try not to take, but they're there of like silent Native women that, um, that fall into stereotypes and those roles are still out there. They're still being written. And I hope that that changes um, soon because Native women were not just silent background objects. And I hope that um, there'll be less of those roles um, out there for Native people in general. Do you think you'd ever want to write or do you think you're more drawn to acting? I definitely want to write. I really want to write. That's kind of why I'm at Stanford right now. Um, not because um, I'm studying Native American history. I'm studying um, um, environmental justice and all these things. But I, I really want to, obviously that informs my advocacy, but I really want to inform my writing as well. I want to inform um, what I'm putting out there. I, I want to know my stuff before um, I want to write quality work. That's so cool. I love writing. We have at my school, we have like the book club and sometimes we have like these like masterclass meetings and they're so much fun because we just kind of sit around and we talk about like our stories and things like that. 10 out of 10. It's lovely. Yeah, I love writing. Um, love writing. You talked a little bit about, you know, how you started on social media and you were in high school when you started, right? Yeah, I started um, my advocacy work about late junior year, right when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Um, I started talking about, um, I, started I started my advocacy actually to raise funds for the Navajo Nation that was just being decimated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And then the racial reckoning of 2020 happened. And I felt it was my um, duty as somebody who sits at the, uh, who has black and native family to talk about Afro-Indigenous people and different racial issues and to talk about, yeah, to talk about racial issues and people were listening. So when people were talking about these more racial issues, um, there was a lot of people interested in my indigeneity. And so um, it's something I talked about. I was young, I wish that I, was a little bit more educated when I was doing some of my advocacy work then, but I was doing my best to inform hundreds of thousands of people the plight of Indian country that nobody was that nobody talks about in the mainstream, that nobody talks about in history, that nobody talks about, um, that politicians don't talk about, that the news doesn't talk about, and so it was it was kind of a lot, um, but I'm really grateful for the influence I was able to able to have and, and still have in, in, in many capacities on social media. Was it really hard for you to have to feel like, I guess not even like the face, but like a lot of people were looking to you for like information on these native issues and you were really, really young. Like, how did you handle that? Um, it was difficult. It was difficult. And it's kind of frustrating now because I feel like less people just so much going on in the world right now that I feel like my videos aren't they they weren't they're not going viral like they did in 2020 when people were willing to listen 
And now I know more, like my majors, and I'm studying this. And so I was 17, trying to just figure out what I could do best. And people were just asking me all sorts of questions. I mean, especially about the missing word indigenous people epidemic, which I knew a bit about, but I, I, I didn't know as much as I know now that I've studied and written so many research papers about it. Um, and I wasn't in touch as much with my mixedness either. I didn't talk about, I, I mean, I did talk about in some capacity Afro-indigeneity, but I didn't relate it to myself. Um, I was kind of distanced from that label and I've done so much more reading now. And I mean, even the issue of blood quantum, I have different views on blood quantum now and these different more niche native issues. I just have different takes and beliefs on that I wish I could have been better about, but I, I, I really do have a lot of compassion for 17 year old me as well as I was just trying my best. And it's also like on people for not doing their own research and relying all their information about native people on a 17 year old girl who's just trying her best. Um, but I, I'm, even though I made mistakes and I know I, even, I knew I was making mistakes in the moment too. I was like, I'm just going to do my best. When people would ask me things on live, I'm like, I don't know. Um, but I have, a, I, I give myself a lot of grace for those times that I didn't know because, I mean, people were asking me for like stuff that a major or masters in this would know, and I didn't know, and now I do know. But um, man, it was it was a learning curve for sure. What do you think you would say to your younger self, like as she was starting this? I think I would tell her that like not everybody's going to understand not everybody's going to care about all your issues and there's going to be lots of cruel people um but despite those people there's lots of people who care and and everyone's saying focus on the positive but like genuinely um I would get so caught up in the hate speech and the racism that I faced online and just it would break me down um I think I have a lot thicker skin now but I'm still sensitive um but when you're an advocate um there's gonna be lots of people who don't like you I, I knew I was making mistakes at the time but I don't think I knew the extent I wish I would tell her to be to be more humble when it comes to her level of knowledge. Um, there's people who've been studying this way longer than my younger self was. Um, and I, while I was doing my best, like I just wish there were sometimes I just didn't say anything and I just referred to a different person who knew more about the subject. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I do have lots of grace for 17 year old me. I mean, a lot has happened in the past three years of my life and I, and I owe a lot of my life to the courage that she had to just take on the internet and talk about these really hard issues. Obviously, I feel like it had to be really hard knowing that there were some people looking to you, but it's like, cause I've told you, like, I kind of learned a lot from you and like, have I learned outside of you? Yes, but what do you think about like social media being used as like this big information platform? Social media is a tool. Um, and it's about how you use it. I think it's very helpful, particularly for Indigenous people, as we make up like 2% of the population. We 
hardly ever make it to mainstream news. And so to be able to have this platform where we don't need, where we can just get straight, cut straight to the people, I think is profoundly impactful. Um, but it is a tool and people do weaponize that a lot. And I, it's frustrating to see a lot of misinformation spread on the internet. Um, but I do think it's particularly helpful, especially for really marginalized groups, like indigenous people like trans people who make up such a f- small fragment of our of our country and our society to be able to have a voice that's straight to whoever they're talking to but that comes with drawbacks um um as well but again i think a lot of people who are advocates on social media are just using the tools that are at their disposal and social media is um can be a great tool in in a lot of different advocacy efforts. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. I'm just so excited. I think like every, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. No, you're good. This is just so cool. Like, I think I'm just like, I feel like I can look to you in a couple like of ways because even though I'm like younger than you, like I'm kind of your age when you were starting this and like we were on very different paths, right? <laughs> but I remember when I was younger, like, I was, I did not have like restricted internet access. I think that's a problem with a lot of us is that we can just be, you know, anywhere at any time. And so I would be talking to like these grown adults who were talking about like, you know, just saying like really colorist things or saying things about like, like black girls and things like that, because, you know, there's like the whole adultification thing and like, oh, they want to be grown, this, that, and the third. And so like, I'm like, well, no, like I'm right here. Like, and so I'm talking to these like adults and I feel like it was so hard to, try to change someone's mind whose mind didn't want to be changed. Like they didn't really want to listen to you. And especially because like, once they find out you're young, they're like, well, you don't know enough about the topic anyways to really be saying anything. Yeah. Um, I think I tried too much when I was younger to convince those people. And I think now that I'm older, I'm like, those people who are going to listen, those people that are never going to listen. Mm-hmm. And you just got to speak to the people who are willing to listen and you can't be constantly trying to win those people over because there's some people who just won't be won over at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you keep pushing and pursuing, there's going to be more people that come around. Um, And that's why I really believe in the power of media. When, When you can show, I think, when it comes to like broad social media, when I'm talking to hundreds of thousands of people, I can't be pandering to every single person there. But when I'm talking individually to a family member or to somebody that I love and we disagree politically about a certain issue, I think coming from a place of love and understanding instead of being so critical of everything that they believe. And I, this is how I was when I was younger. I, was, I would cut people off immediately if we had like one single difference in ideology. And, um, and a lot of left-leaning people left uh people on the left are like that still and I understand why they do that um I really do love Adrian Marie Brown's uh, we will not cancel us and just like having more grace for people who who want to listen who are who are listening um and being able to sit down and when you come from a mutual place of love that's when you can actually change people's minds I think um 
But when you're speaking to hundreds of thousand people, you just can't pander to everyone. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. And trying to get all those people to listen to you and to understand you, it's it's impossible. And I wish that, I think, I wish I knew when I was younger to be more discerning about when's the time to take, when, when is it the time to sit down with somebody and explain and have grace and understanding? And when is it the time to just let that person go? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important. Um, and I think that, um, especially amongst activist spheres, I think we need to have more grace for each other as we're all learning. Um, I think we need to give people room to make mistakes um, and, and, and to grow. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a difficult line to walk. We also have to protect your own peace. You know, like to what extent am I going to go out of my way to change somebody's mind um, that is that going to harm me in this process is something that I take into account when I'm discerning between whether who to pander to. And when you work with congressional people, you kind of have to pander. <laughs> I mean, you you have to. Um, and there's a time to you, you got to pick your battles, you know, mm-hmm. um, and protect pick your battles protect your peace is like what that really comes down to. So you've talked about, you know, being less knowledgeable and now you're learning all of these things through school, but are there people outside of school who you think have really helped you learn more about Native issues? Um, Native issues, um, I mean, I've had really great professors. I've done a lot of reading Mm -hmm. um, in the past three years. Um, I've done a lot of reading, um, reading, um, sweetgrass has shaped my views on, um, on uh, traditional ecological knowledge and how that can inform um, climate justice work. Um, in terms of indigenous, I just don't, like read lots of research papers. I can't think of anybody specifically at the top of my head, but I know um, just like professors that I've had have been really great. Um, but I, I think in the past three years, um, I've also just like done a lot more reading about racial issues in general, um, in reading, um, just like theory and different things that have really shaped not just my views on indigeneity, but my views on racial hierarchy, racism, um, and how to be good advocates, how to be good activists. Um, I've done a lot of reading, more reading about that, reading Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, Davis, like just people like that, just trying to be learner, a learner of history to see what works, what doesn't work in advocacy work um, is, is what I um, have done in the past three years. But in terms of indigenous knowledge, I think that has just come from um, the articles that I've read and the people that I'm around. There's so many native people, like friends that I've had that have taught me so much, like even at Stanford, like there's lots of really smart native people my age that have taught me um, and like doing this advocacy work. I've met, I mean, I work with so many different native organizations now and they have taught me things like being, doing the work has also informed me as well. Um, and I'm really grateful for all the people um, that have helped me on my advocacy journey and have, that I've learned from as well. What do you think your advice would be for young people, or I guess people in general who want to be better at advocating? Um, 
I started my advocacy work really small, a club at my high school. Um, I really do believe what you pay attention to and what you tend to at the smallest level will grow in whatever, and you can't take on the whole world. Nobody can do that. Um, but I think picking something that you care about um, that's feasible, attainable, um, and just tending to that, watching that snowball is beautiful. I really do believe in the ripple effect when it comes to advocacy work. Um, Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown is a great book about um, how advocacy needs to be on the smallest level. Um, when you when you tend to something and really care for it, and and you build out your relationships with other people who are aligned with this collective vision for good and, and liberation, that's when you create something genuine. Um, and it doesn't have to look like creating a non, it can look like creating a nonprofit, it can look like creating a club, but it also can be something entirely different. It could be making a really beautiful piece of art that speaks to your community or just being in community. Um, I think having a North Star is really important. I think being rooted in your community is really important. And once you have those values really strong, once you know what you what your collective goal is, like what does it look like to win um, and what you can do in that moment to work toward that win in that beautiful collective future, um, I think that's um, a great place to start and a great place to build a foundation for something really meaningful. You know, when you finish a goal and it's kind of like the what's next moment. Yeah. Do you think that it's like, do you think that you have trouble sitting in like your victory? Do you think you just try to go to the next thing because there are so many issues that you are trying to help solve in your own way? I think I do definitely have trouble like celebrating victories because um, I want to get to the next thing. But I think that hope is really integral to movements. And I have learned to celebrate wins, not for my own good specifically. I have to pat myself on the back, which I probably need to do a little bit more. Um, but to make people, because I'm not the only person doing this. There's so many people who are doing this. And everyone that signed a petition or contact the state representative, they're all in this too. Um, and celebrating those wins so everybody can see what they've accomplished is really important in continuing to move on and move forward um, and making people feel like they can create change because they can is incredibly important. And that comes with celebrating wins and taking time to congratulate um, people in is really important. And that's part of relationship building, being able to say thank you, being able to say, um, I appreciate you being able to say, look what we accomplished and celebrating with your kin and um, fellow advocates and friends. It's incredibly important and something that I've learned to do more and more. Friends and people who really care about these issues is where I find community, but also like in advocacy work. Like um, I had to really swallow my pride and reach out to different people who are doing this work as well. Um, and they ended up being incredible allies. 
and I have really good friends, the Lakota People's Project and the National Congress of American Indians, um, even some people who are working on the Hill. And and um, I did a program with RISE um, by with Amanda Nguyen, um, who passed federal legislation. And I mean, those people are all working on their own separate issues um, to create um, like a better society. And just like being able to talk with those people as well has been great. Um, I worked in different nonprofit spheres with other advocates and have been able to get tied in there. Um, I don't know, I guess when you really throw yourself into this work and you're intentional about like being good to the people that you meet, um, you, you, you create, you find people and it can, there's times I felt really lonely. Lots of times I felt lonely in this work. Especially when you're doing online advocacy, it feels like you're you're doing this alone. Um, but I've been really grateful to find people who really care about this issue. Um, I really do believe in coalition building and in, in as well. So, I mean, I'm rooted in the Native community, but I'm also just I think my community extends outside of the Native community. Just extends to advocates of all kinds. Um, my really close ally and people that mascots is Sophia Angele who coded the People Not Mascots website. She's incredible, um, Black coder. And being able to create coalitions with um, Black advocates as well has been really incredible for me, just because there's so many issues um, that we that we face similarly. Like we have similar maternal mortality rates. We have similar police brutality rates and being able to find community in some level of understanding um, in those advocacy groups has really helped me. Um, and I, I don't know, I just, when I have thrown myself into this work, especially like online, I, I made mutuals with people who, I have mutuals who've been doing this work and connecting with them, texting with them, calling them has been really great. But I don't know, my experience, when I've just thrown myself into this, I've just, I threw myself into this work and I found other people there. You talked earlier about having to pander while you're trying to work on your legislation. Um, what do you think has been the hardest part, like navigating your advocacy and keeping your values while trying to bring legislation to, I guess, like the surface? Um, yeah, to bring this resolution. Um, I mean, the resolution is also just like a form of building hope. It's basically just would be an apology from Congress for Anita mascots. Um, so I wouldn't do anything on the ground, but I want to work toward legislation. Um, that being said, I think for me, it has, when you're rooted in your community and you have a specific goal, it's it's easier to navigate like this level of pandering. And for me, I have to really be discerning between like, why am I pandering? Like, am I pandering for my people or am I pandering to better my own position? To, to give myself proximity to power. Because if that's motivation, then I just quit pandering. But if I'm pandering to move along my resolution, if I'm pandering to move along my people, then, then I think that is okay and understandable. And I draw lines, I draw limits. There's just some things, I think for me, it boils down to what is best for my community. And if the pandering becomes harmful to my community, I need to stop what I'm doing. But if the pandering is toward a greater good and necessary, then it's something that I endure and do. And I think that's something, a line that I've really had to walk. Um, 
and be really careful because it's easy to fall into that constant pandering to higher powers um, for your own self-promotion. I've seen lots of, not lots, but I've seen some activists fall into that route and they totally lose sight of who they were working and advocating for in the first place. As you've gotten more educated and you've also like gotten farther along in your journey, do you think your role in activism has changed? Or do you think that you've been, I guess, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I do you think you stayed pretty much to what you started? I think that I have the same goal, which is the safety of my people. I think I've come at it in different ways. I've learned more about environmental justice. I've learned more about the missing word indigenous people epidemic. And the more I'm educated, the more I can come at these issues from different angles and from different positions. But I think that my goal is still the same. I just come at it in different ways and different mediums, trying to accomplish the same thing through different modes, whether that be policy, whether that be paper writing, whether that be um, being an actor in filmmaking. Um, uh, I think it, I have the same goal. I just play different roles to get to that same goal, which is a collective good for my people. So we talked a little bit about representation in film and television. Um, do you think there are any fiction books that have stood out to you? Um, Louise Eldridge writes really great books around uh, House, the There There um, are really good books of hers. Um, I read a lot of nonfiction, so, um, but there's lots of great native fiction out there. I just, mm -hmm. I'm a nonfiction person. Um, yeah, Louise Eldridge is up there. Um, I'll plug my cousin Tanea Winder writes really great poetry about indigenous issues. Um, man, um, Indian Girls Book Club has lots of great resources and that's run by a really good friend of mine, Kinsel Drake, um, who makes books and and platforms native books oh, who doesn't make books um makes books available for indigenous people and also platforms indigenous writers um of all kinds um she's really fantastic um and so i think she's more probably has way more better fiction book recs than me and Indian Girl Book Club has lots of good recommendations. I just can't think of them on the top of my head because I read lots of nonfiction. Um, just because I really, I, there are definitely things you can learn from fiction. I just love learning new things. So I read lots of nonfiction. Um, but yeah, I wish I had more fiction recs. <laughs> We're definitely opposites in that way because I'm definitely like a fiction girly. Um, <laughs> but I've definitely been working to read more nonfiction. I know like for me, I'm really drawn to narratives and poetry though. But I was like, okay, guys, I have to get serious. But I feel like I agree when you say like fiction can teach you a lot because I feel like one thing that has really helped me is seeing different perspectives, even in people who are like me, and especially in people who aren't like me. Um, because it's like I still have a very like privileged life, but I've been able to, you know, have a roof over my head and have stability and have like a loving family and things like that. And so for me, it's still like, obviously I have to expose myself and make sure that I can show empathy for others. So I feel like for me, 
like storytelling has been such a huge part of that. Um, and I don't know, I just really love that. And I also got really excited when you said you're an actor because I'm like a little bit of a theater nerd. Um, and so like, I don't know, I just feel like it's so cool how many mediums there are to tell these stories because they are so important. Yeah, I, I totally think so too. Um, Kinsel Drake is also a poet herself, um, incredible poet. Um, yeah, there's lots of works there. Yeah, I really love storytelling. Um, I really want to go into screenplay writing at some point. But yeah, I, I do appreciate all the mediums in which we can tell stories. Native people are storytellers. And um, I, I, it's a way for me to connect um, to, to my ancestors in a way, um, to tell stories and to, and to, to yeah, to tell stories. Um, and I feel really privileged and honored to take on that custom in those ways in a new modern light. That's so exciting. I'm really excited for you. And I'm definitely excited to see what you end up doing. Because, you know, I'm going to be seeing you for sure. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I just love talking to people who like like writing and things like that. Because I feel like I am very, I guess... Like I write a lot of different things, but I think one thing that's always been something that I'm drawn to is definitely romance because I feel like a lot of times like black girls don't get to be as delicate and don't get to like have like little swoony like fairy tale like oh my gosh we kiss in the rain like whatever kind of scenes and that's always what yeah. I've been drawn to and like I used to love like Disney princesses because like Princess and the Frog was like well and like Cinderella if you haven't seen Brandy Cinderella you should watch it because I love that movie. Um, but I feel like for me, it's always been like, I'm like a really girly girl. So like, I want to be a princess and, you know, I want to have all these nice dresses and things like that. Like when I'm a little girl, you know, like not as much now, but it's like, I do want to see myself in these roles. And I feel like that's really influenced me and like my perspective, because one thing I've noticed is like, I really like rom-coms and, you know, there has definitely been like an increase in representation when it comes to like girls of color, but not necessarily black girls. And so for me, that's kind of important because there are a lot of girls like me out there, like, you know, the romantics and like, you know, we want to have a little something for ourselves. I agree. I really look forward to representation where BIPOC, specifically black and indigenous women are seen as desirable um, and, and delicate and fun and lovely. Um, and bubbly um and is brandy cinderella is that the one with whitney houston yes it is oh i love that one I it's, love, so good. it's so good i would love to see more stuff like that exactly. um yeah yeah i i think that i would love to see um yeah black girls in com uh, in rom-coms native girls in rom-coms and i'm excited for that to happen eventually mm -hmm. I think that's why, like, even if it turns out to be bad, I'm still going to be very excited to watch Little Mermaid. Mind you, I literally graduate, like, two days before it comes out, and no one's focused on graduation. We're all, like, so when are we seeing Little Mermaid? Like, when is that happening? Real. I am very, I'm definitely, like, a film critic. Like, I go into films very critical. One thing about me, I don't care how bad the CGI looks in Little Mermaid. I don't care if Eric can't act for anything. <laughs> I will come out of that movie and be like, it was the best movie I ever saw. Like, just like, I don't care. I just, um, yeah, I don't care. 
if, <laughs> especially after seeing all the reactions of the little kids watching it, like seeing the movie trailer, I'm never, I'm not going to say anything. I'll be quiet. If it's awful, I will not say anything. I will just be like, yeah, Halle Bailey did great. Like, like she was fantastic. She was radiant. And that's all I will say. <laughs> like, no, I really, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I've been so excited to see like all these videos of like these little girls being like oh my gosh like look at the mermaid and stuff like that like I don't know it just kind of warms my heart like oh and then like I'm a little bit biased because I've loved Hallie since like middle school when they were like Chloe and Hallie was still a duo like oh my gosh yeah. yeah I'm excited it's 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 gonna be lovely regardless of how everything else turns out I mean into V Jigs as Sebastian it's gonna be fun I'm gonna have a good time <laughs> I, I do really like Debbie Diggs. I was a little bit biased about that too because I was like, so I was not in like the Hamilton like group, but then I found like the cast and like, I don't know, Amy Riverlandman and Debbie Diggs, like, I was like, you guys speak to me. Like, and so I was like, let me listen to all your songs. Like, what is this? What is this? What no, is this? he's so good. He's so good. Um, and he's so charismatic about it. Oh my gosh. No, yeah. And he's he's an attractive man. Like <laughs> yes, you do have a crush on Dewey Diggs. <laughs> um yeah. I do have to go here soon. Um, but if is there if there's any other questions, I'm happy to answer before I have to hop. No, you're totally fine. Thank you so much for talking to me. Yes, of course. Um, and if you have any follow-up questions or anything like let me know if you want me back in the pod. Um, that'd be fun. And like, yeah, this was great. And I'm so glad we had the opportunity to catch up. And I'm so sorry that I was like lagging on responses. I've been, it's been a whirlwind for me for the past month. No, you're totally fine. I get it completely, especially with graduation. Oh my gosh. Everybody is going a little bit crazy right now. Yeah, my younger sibling is graduating in like two weeks here soon. So um a week. So it's crazy at my house as well. Well, please tell them I said congratulations. Um, and thank you again for being on. Yes, of course. And congratulations to you. Um, um, have a great time at Brown and have a great graduation, Destiny. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to an episode of Melanated and Educated. If you would like to see more of the podcast, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Melanated and Educated Podcast. If you would like to see more of the host, you can follow me on Instagram at Deslilboo. That's D-E-S-L-I-L-B-O-O. Once again, thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed.